Well, I want to open this morning by asking a question. And I want us to think about this question together. I want to first imagine that Jesus Christ walked through those back doors. And he walks into the sanctuary here. And there is no doubt in any of our minds that this is indeed the Son of God walking among us. And he turns to us and he addresses us and he asks this question. Will you follow me? What I want us to think about is how many of us would get up and leave? Now, initially, my response would be, of course I would leave. If Jesus Christ walked into this room and there was no doubt in my mind that indeed this was God, of course I would follow. But if I spend a little bit more time with this, I recognize that there might be a few things inhibiting me from leaving. There might be a few things that would keep me from running out those back doors. The first, I would probably want to discuss this with my wife. I'd want to talk with her. I would want to make sure that she was okay with this, that indeed she would come as well. I would probably want to go change out of this robe. It's not the best for traveling. I would probably need to pack a bag of clothes to grab my iPhone charger so that I could stay in contact with my friends and my family. I would need to line up a a dog sitter, someone that would come and let my dog out and water my plants. I would have to touch base with my supervisor here at Christ Church to make sure that they were okay with me taking an extended period of time off, set up my out-of-office automated reply with my email. I'd begin to worry about who was going to make sure that rent was being covered, that bills weren't being missed. The point is, there are a lot of things in my life that would keep me from getting up and leaving. There are a lot of things that tie me to this world. And if I'm completely honest, internally I would really struggle with that question. Last week, Dan told us that wouldn't it be so nice if we lived when Jesus was alive? Wouldn't it be so much easier to have faith If Jesus Christ was right there in front of us and we saw the miracles that he did. We saw him feeding 5,000 people. We saw him healing the sick and raising the dead back to life. We heard his teaching. We bowed in prayer with him. Wouldn't it be so much easier to have faith? This morning, I want to challenge that idea because I'm not entirely sure it's as easy as that. I want to open up together to Luke chapter 14, and we're going to start with verse 25, but we're going to jump down uh, to verse 33 in a moment. Jesus is addressing a large crowd of people. They've come from uh, various places to hear him teach, and he says this, 
Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Let's skip ahead down to 33. He summarizes by saying, In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. You see, the cost of discipleship was great. The cost of faith was beyond anything we probably can comprehend. And Jesus is speaking here both very practically and then on a much deeper spiritual level. From the practical standpoint, he's addressing a large crowd that's come out to hear him, and Jesus knows that he is about to travel to the next town. And so literally, if these people don't come and follow him right now, they won't be able to catch up with him. There are no airports. There are no hour-long flights. He's not going to be sending out any email alerts or text blasts to let all of his disciples know where he's going to be. The only way to stay in touch with Jesus, the only way to make sure that you are with him, is by leaving everything you know to follow him. And then at a much deeper spiritual level, as we talked about a a couple weeks ago, that Jesus recognized unless these disciples were willing to give up everything and emulate who Jesus was, they could not become his vessels. Now, in Hebrew traditions, there's a statement that says that it is important to follow in the dust of your rabbi. You see, these rabbis or teachers would have a group of disciples, and those disciples would follow so closely behind their rabbi that the dust from their sandals would kick up and cake on their robes. And so Jesus is calling these disciples because if a disciple is truly to live under the teachings of the rabbi, if they are truly to become vessels, to become extensions of who the rabbi is, then they must be willing to give up everything. So that when people see the disciples, they indeed see the rabbi as well. Now, we know that the 12 disciples have given up everything. We see that they literally drop their nets and follow Jesus. They, they leave behind their homes. They leave behind their livelihood. They leave behind their families. And they follow after this rabbi that they've never met before. And so you can understand that these disciples don't fully embrace this idea that Jesus will leave soon. And Jesus keeps telling them that there will come a day that I will not be with you. And the disciples don't fully understand that. They can't embrace that this man who they have given up everything to follow will just leave them there without anything. And so as we look in John chapter 14, a passage that we're going to be following throughout this series on the Holy Spirit, we see Jesus continuing to try to help them understand what it's going to look like when he leaves. 
what it will look like for them to continue to walk in the dust of their rabbi after their rabbi has left them. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Now Jesus says, when I leave, take heart. I'm not leaving you just to go back to your old jobs. Instead, I'm going to ask my father to send another advocate like me. And as Dan carefully explained last week, the Holy Spirit is not some sort of substitute teacher or lesser version of Jesus, but rather the third extension of the Trinity. This Holy Spirit will come after and he will walk with you. He will become your rabbi. And if you continue... To follow in his dust, then you will continue to be extensions and vessels of God. So then we have to ask the question, how can these disciples be assured that indeed they are walking in the dust of the rabbi? It's, it's, the Holy Spirit is not a physical manifestation like Jesus was. It was a fairly simple task when Jesus was there. If I'm walking behind him, I'm following in his dust. And so Paul helps us understand what the Spirit looks like. What it looks like to be following closely behind this rabbi. And so I want to open together to a very familiar passage. One that we've probably all memorized as little children. It is the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5 22, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So Paul says, if you are keeping in step with the Spirit, if you are literally walking in the dust of your rabbi, you will begin to notice these attributes of the Holy Spirit. You will begin to become extensions of the character of God. And you will see in yourselves love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And if I'm honest, this list is pretty encouraging because it's fairly easy to convince myself that these attributes are evident in my life and therefore the Spirit must also be evident. Love. All of us in here love our families, our, our neighbors, friendships. We have, we have people in our lives that we care deeply about. Peace. I find myself in a time of life where I'm not anxious about a lot. Forbearance or patience, and while I'll admit that I'm not the most patient, there are times that I am. Kindness and goodness. I like to consider myself a nice person. Faithfulness. Well, surely I believe in God and I, I follow after Him. Gentleness and self-control. 
And so it's easy to read a passage like this and pat ourselves on the back and say, we've got it all figured out. However, it's when we look at the preceding verses that this reality begins to become challenged. In the preceding verses, Paul talks about the acts of the flesh, or as I like to call them, the fruits of the flesh. And he lists them off. He says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this list in its entirety is not a descriptor, hopefully, of any of us in this room. But if we really pick it apart, I begin to recognize in my own life that many of these fruits of the flesh are just as evident as the fruit of the Spirit. Fits of rage when directly translated from the Greek, is anger that comes quickly and dissolves just as fast. How many of us have had arguments with our spouses or our siblings that got very heated, but almost as soon as they came, we were laughing because we had no idea what we were arguing about? That is a fruit of the flesh. Who in here can say they have never done anything out of their own selfish ambition? Dissension. Many of us have relationships that have become strained by conflict. Relatives, old friends that have now become estranged because of a petty argument. Factions. Just look around these neighborhoods just to see how many churches have broken off from each other because they couldn't agree on certain statements of faith and theology. Envy, jealousy. We've all had times where we wished we had a nicer car or wished we had the newest gadget that our friend was showing us at work. Idolatry. We so often place things before God. And worship them as idols. And so the question becomes, if I am recognizing both the fruit of the Spirit in my life and the fruit of the flesh, how am I to interpret that? And unfortunately, Paul has a word for that. And in 16, he says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, walk in the dust of your rabbi, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You will not gratify the fruit of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. It's a challenging statement because Paul recognizes that the Holy Spirit is not evident in the fruit of the flesh. And if we are recognizing those things, we recognize that there are things in our life that are in direct contradiction with the Spirit of God. We recognize that 
we may not be fully walking in the dust of our rabbi. We may not be these perfect vessels, these extensions of God here on earth. And so, personally, I need to start looking at what it is in my life that is impeding or inhibiting the Spirit. Because what I don't want our takeaway to be is that we leave this place and say, all right, I got I to gotta stop doing that stuff, and I got to do more of this stuff. Because Paul never says that those that walk with the Spirit should try really hard not to do the fruit of the flesh and should try really hard to be good people. No, he says that when the Spirit is evident, when the Spirit is present in our lives, the fruit of the flesh dissolve and the fruit of the Spirit come out from us. Because it's by no means any effort of our own. And so I want to take a moment this morning to look at three basic truths, three promises about the Holy Spirit, and ask ourselves the question, is Scripture lying, or is there something that is impeding my ability to take hold of those promises? Last week, I watched a movie with my wife uh, called Big Eyes. Is there anyone in here that has, has seen Big Eyes yet? Okay, so there are a few of us, and this movie is about Walter and Margaret Keene, uh, two artists, and we find out later that Walter is, is more of a con man than he is an artist, but his wife, Margaret Keene, paints these portraits of little children with these huge eyes. And these portraits captivate audiences, and they draw you in. There's something of familiarity when you look at them. And so... Walter and Margaret meet at a street fair, and they fall in love. And they get married, and in a, in a little restaurant, they set up um, an art gallery in the back. And one evening, Margaret happens to be home, and Walter is kind of schmoozing with the, with the patrons of the restaurant and trying to get them to purchase some art when a couple comes up and taps him on the shoulder and says, I love your art. I would love to purchase one. And so quickly he goes over to the landscape art that he has done and he starts to pull one off the wall and they say, no, 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 not the landscapes. We would like to purchase one of those ones of the little children. And right there, instead of correcting their mistake, he sees no harm in simply pulling one of his wife's portraits off the wall and selling it to them. However, this first sale sets off an avalanche of popularity for Margaret Keene's work. And the couple becomes trapped in this lie that Margaret is indeed not an artist, but Walter is the one that created both these landscapes and also these little children. And as they grow deeper and deeper into this lie, they realize that if they were ever to tell the truth, their empire would fall apart. They would be seen as frauds. And her artwork would lose its value. So it was of the utmost importance to make sure that they kept their little secret. Now, obviously, Margaret had to continue to paint these, these caricatures, these portraits. And so they bought this beautiful home, a home for great entertaining, a lovely living room and dining room, a beautiful pool area. And in this room, they dedicated, or in this home, they dedicated one room to be Margaret's art studio. 
And Margaret was the only person ever allowed in this room. They would lock the door so that no guest might stumble upon it and realize that everything they were about was based on a lie. Even their daughter never stepped foot into Margaret's art gallery. And they continued living in this lie for 10 years. I want to open to 1 Corinthians 6. And look at verses 19 and 20. Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You see, this passage tells us a lot about God's plan in this world. God the Father sends his son to the earth to pay the price of sin on the cross so that he can purchase you and I as temples for his Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit's presence might continue in this world until the end of days. And he says that our bodies are literally temples. They're vessels. They're extensions of who God is. But oftentimes, I act like Margaret and Walter Keene. And I take the things that are precious to me. My comforts. The relationships I I can't stand to lose, the job security that I love, and I, I stuff them all into this little room in my temple. And I lock the door and I say, God, you can have everything else. All I have is this this little room. And you don't need to go in there. There's nothing special in there. And at first it seems like, you know, we're giving God a pretty good deal. I just want just a little bit, and I'm going to give you everything else. But you see, that's founded on the assumption that our bodies are ours to start with. That we are somehow the landlords of the temple, and we rent out some space to the Holy Spirit. But the fact of the matter is, is that the Holy Spirit will not reside in a temple dedicated to more than one God. And if we have a room filled with our idols, filled with our own ambition, then we inhibit the work of the Spirit in our lives. Last year, my wife and I moved into a house in Westmont. And on our first day in the house, we met a couple of our neighbors. And one of our neighbors, Phil, has become a good friend of ours. Phil lives just across the street, and he loans me tools to work on projects in the yard, and we bump into each other, and and we talk for sometimes 30 minutes to an hour just on the curb. He's a limo driver, and so he loves to tell me about the celebrities that he's driven around Chicago. And almost every time we finish up our conversations, we end with one or the other of us saying, you should really come over for dinner sometime. But in an entire year living across the street from each other, I have never actually had Phil come over to my house to share a meal with me. And it's not because 
I don't like Phil. Phil's a great guy. It's not because I think that having him over for dinner would be awkward. I think it would be great. I would love to sit down. I would love to share a meal. But it's because every time I invite him, I invite him with no expectation that he would actually come. My life is busy, and the few slots I have to invite people over for dinner are typically filled with my closest friends and family. And so those invitations fall short. Luke chapter 11 talks a little bit about this type of invitation. Jesus is addressing his disciples and and teaching them about prayer. And he says, Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Jesus says, you know, if, if a father is willing to provide for his son, then don't you think our heavenly father would be willing to provide for his children? And I think a lot of times we misunderstand this passage and we read it more like this. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give to you when you ask? But he doesn't say just give to you anything that you pray for. He says, Give his Holy Spirit to you if you ask. And so if this is true, and we believe Scripture to be true, then how come when I have invited the Holy Spirit in my life, I haven't seen the radical change that maybe I've seen throughout the Gospels and throughout Paul's letters? I think it has to do a lot with how we have invited him. I think we have invited the Holy Spirit much in the same way that I have invited my neighbor Phil for dinner. We have invited the Holy Spirit with absolutely no expectation that he would actually come. Children are bold in asking their parents for things. I don't think I ever felt badly as a child when I asked my dad to get me a pack of baseball cards. But I'm not sure we're so bold in inviting the Holy Spirit into our lives. And it's not because we don't like the idea of it. It's not because we don't like who the Holy Spirit is. It's because we're too busy to follow up. We're too stretched to do so boldly. And so we become surprised when We don't necessarily recognize the Holy Spirit being there. Years ago, when I was a freshman in college, I was walking in the halls of Wheaton, and an upperclassman approached me, and he said, You're Pete Stearns, right? I've heard a lot about you. And of course, you know, my chest puffed up, and I said, Oh, yeah? You know, tell me about that. And he said, I would love to get lunch with you. And so I was feeling pretty good about myself that these upperclassmen knew who I was. And and we got together for lunch the next day in the cafeteria. And I quickly realized that this upperclassman had no intention of 
really talking to me about who I was, really getting to know me. Instead, he began asking me questions about the work that my dad did, and I love talking about World Vision's work, and so I talked to him about that. And then he asked, I would love to ask your dad a few more questions about this. Might you pass along his email address to me? And as the conversation continued, he said, do you think you could put in a good word with your dad for me so that I might be able to get a job with him? And I realized that he had no interest in inviting me to lunch. He had an interest in his own personal gain and what I could bring him. Again, we see a similar invitation in Scripture. And in Acts chapter 8, we hear this story of a guy named Simon the Sorcerer, which is a pretty good nickname, you got to admit. So Simon the Sorcerer lives in Samaria, and he does these incredible magic tricks, and all the people of the land are just captivated by him. But one day, Philip, a disciple of the Holy Spirit, comes into his town and he begins doing these incredible works of God. And suddenly, this town that was captivated with, with the sorcerer becomes changed by the Holy Spirit and start to dedicate their lives to him. And Simon, instead of becoming jealous, recognizes that this power is great too. And it says that he dedicates his life to God. Hallelujah, right? But instead, he starts to see the Holy Spirit acting, and he sees that Peter and Philip lay hands on these people, and suddenly this power is transferred to them. And so he comes to them with his money and says, I've dedicated my life to God, and I want this Holy Spirit so that I too can lay hands on others, and they might receive the Spirit. I mean, this sounds like a story of somebody that is just on fire for God and wants to do anything they possibly can to receive the Holy Spirit and so that they can go out and do his work as well. But Peter's response is startling. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Well, that didn't go as we expected. You see, Peter recognizes that Simon is pursuing the Holy Spirit, not because he wants to be a vessel of God here on this earth, but because he wants to have the same power as Peter and Philip, and he wants to be recognized for that power in his community. How many of us have done the same thing? We've prayed for the Holy Spirit because we want to feel like we're closer to God. We want to feel like we've got it figured out. We want to look like a certain type of Christian. We invite the Holy Spirit because of how it makes us feel about the things that we want out of our own ambition, out of our own pride. And it is obvious here that if that is the case, we won't be able to experience the Spirit. In fact, Galatians 5, the passage we have been looking at today about the Holy Spirit, sums up by saying this. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. 
Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. And at first it seems like Paul is wrapping up this passage by again talking about a few of the fruits of the flesh that we shouldn't get caught up in. But instead I think he's saying that the Holy Spirit wants to act in you. He wants to dissolve this fruit of the flesh and he wants to make evident his attributes so that you can become a vessel or extension. But if you begin to take credit for these things, if you begin to become conceited in the way that your life looks because of the Holy Spirit, you will begin to mask his presence to the world around you. And so we're left asking ourselves the question, what should we do? If it's not a matter of not doing these fruits of the flesh, and it's not a matter of trying really hard to have the fruit of the Spirit, what are we left with? I think the answer is prayer. And so as we leave this place I want to challenge each of us in this room to pray these three prayers this week. The first is to pray that God would help you surrender your entire spirit or your entire life to his Holy Spirit. Ask God to help you begin releasing those things that you've put in that little room. It's not going to happen all at once. And it's not going to be like a garage sale where you just have to sell it at a cheaper cost. No, God's going to need to start working in your life. He's going to need to start opening your hands and letting you release those things. Because if we can't give God our whole temple, we can't experience his presence fully. Second is pray that we would be bold enough to invite his spirit in expectation. Like a little child asking their father or mother for something, we need to come before God asking and fully expecting to receive his Holy Spirit in our life. Because if we do so and we don't have expectation and we're not disappointed when he doesn't arrive, then I'm not sure the Holy Spirit will really respond to that request. And finally, pray for humility in responding to the work of the Spirit. When you've done these first two things, when God has opened your heart, when the Spirit has resided in you, pray that you would have humility to recognize that it is not you, but the Spirit that works through you. That you have become a vessel, an extension, so that you might go from this place and walk in the dust of your rabbi. Let's take a moment to lift these things before the Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would begin to help us loosen our grip on the things that we so rely on. Lord, our comfort, our job security, our possessions, our homes— Lord, we pray that you would help us surrender those things to you. And in doing so, make ourselves a temple fit for your presence. Lord, we pray that you would give us boldness 
Lord, that we would be unashamed in asking you for your Holy Spirit. That, Lord, we would courageously reach out to you in total expectation so that we might be flooded with your Spirit's presence. And Lord, we pray that when that happens, you would give us incredible humility. And Lord, you would release from us any pride that we might take in the work that you have done in our lives. Lord, we pray that we would become a church that was sensitive to your spirit. And Lord, a people that walk in the dust of our rabbi. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.